you're driving to court, you got your music on, you're ready to go kick butt, but you're also scared. I mean, you've just got this mix of emotions. And then when the trial starts, obviously, you're just in there to crush it. And to go through all of that is so much fun. That's Brian Chase, renowned trial attorney and managing partner at Bisner Chase. And you're going to offer me that 200 grand. And I'm going to politely say F you. And then you're going to offer me 250. And I'm going to say F you. Then you're going to offer me three or 400. You're going to offer me more. And at some point you'll stop. And I'm going to say no. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Brian Chase to discuss his approach for securing hundreds of millions of dollars in verdicts, how to build a firm culture that attracts and rewards A players, and why it's important to run your practice like a business if you intend to grow and scale. When I was in law school, they told me, no, we're a profession, we're not a business. Bullshit, we're a business. And if you don't run it like a business, you're gonna fail. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Brian Chase is one of the most successful and highest regarded trial attorneys in the nation. He serves as the managing partner at Bisner Chase, an acclaimed personal injury firm in Southern California, and regularly speaks on elite trial strategies for plaintiff's attorneys. I began our conversation by asking Brian about his decision to become a lawyer in the first place. When I was a kid growing up, I was a long-haired surfer out here in Southern California. I actually surfed in pro-am contests. I was never a suit and tie guy. So people that knew me in high school are shocked I'm a lawyer. People that know me as a lawyer are shocked I used to be this long-haired surfer guy. But I didn't grow up wanting to be an attorney. Nothing even was on my radar. And I was in college, and I had a class. This was back in the early 80s. And we had to go to the library and do a research on this child called Baby Faye. You're too young to know about it. But Baby Faye in the 80s, they put a baboon heart in a little kid. And we had to research it and then debate it in class, both pro and con on that side of the story. That was the first time in my life that the long-haired surfer guy sat in the library for four days, just diving into all this microfiche and researching everything about it. And when I got done doing that, I had so much fun in that class. I thought, if I ever decide to go straight and stop surfing, I'm going to be a lawyer because this is what they do. They have to do their homework. They got to be able to present both sides. And I just got really, really fired up about that. That was the first seed. The second seed was the Ford Pinto litigation with the cars blowing up and learning that they put profit over people and the Ernie Grush memo. So when I go back on the uh, that class, it forced me into a library, which is where I would not hang out, combined with the Ford Pinto thing. I went to law school, and I think I'm one of the few that wanted to be a personal injury attorney. I didn't go there, and I couldn't get a job at a big corporate firm or a big defense firm. I went to school to be a PI attorney, and I've loved it ever since. Yeah, I know now, I mean, you're, you're known for literally being an expert when it comes to auto defects, defective product, defective drugs, all these different things. And I guess pun intended, but what drove you to these types of cases in particular? Probably the Fort Pinto stuff, you know? I mean, that baby face story drove me to want to be a lawyer. I love the intellectual challenge, the curiosity and that type of stuff. But when I learned about the Ford Pentos and then when I'm in law school, 
I knew I wanted to do PI, personal injury, but I also took a products liability class in there. And so we'd studied the Ford case, but also a lot of other auto defect cases and other products cases where sometimes, and I'm not anti-corporation, there's great corporations, but they cut corners sometimes. I became very passionate about that is what I want to do when I get out of here. If I can write that wrong, that's a wrong I want to write. And I want to be on the side of, of the little guy there. It's interesting because you're someone that I can tell genuinely loves what you do. And you can't say that for everybody in the legal profession. It, you know, they go in for various reasons and so on, but it just seems like such a right fit that almost anything else would be the wrong thing. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm so lucky and I can say the same thing about you too, because you, you, you know, your passion is, is contagious, but I never want to retire. I could, uh, you know, I could retire a long time ago. I, but what would I do? I mean, this is so much fun. Like I have hobbies, I travel, I golf, but this is just as much fun for me. You know, the intellectual challenge of being in trial and going up against these Fortune 500 companies and the best experts, to me, it's just, and it's probably driven from a little bit of ego because you want to go crush them, uh, which is really driven from insecurities because your ego is because you're insecure. And so I got to do 10 times more work than everybody else. But it just, it satisfies every piece of my life to do what I'm doing. I get to help people get to earn a decent income. I'm intellectually challenged all the time and I get paid for it. <laughs> well, and, and you know, as the saying goes, I guess the best marketing is results and your, your results are, I mean, are outstanding to say the least. I mean, you've got the, the list of seven, eight, even nine figure verdicts under your belt. Um, what, what do you think separates you and, and the firm and, and your success from other firms? You know, there's two components to that. One is the business side and then two would be the actual legal work side. But, you know, from the business side, You've got to be innovative, as you know, with the marketing. You need marketing. You need verdicts to market. You need relationships. You need a good culture in your office. So from the business side, you've got to realize it's a business. When I was in law school, they told me, no, we're a profession. We're not a business. Bullshit. We're a business. And if you don't run it like a business, you're going to fail. And so, you know, 20 plus years ago, my partner and I ran it like a business, investigated various opportunities like any business would do to want to grow it. And we would face our fears on that. Growth is scary. And the people I've seen that I leapfrogged over, it was because they were afraid of hiring that extra paralegal. They looked at that as money coming out of their pocket or hiring that extra lawyer. And they look at that as money coming out of their pocket. When John and I were growing this firm, it wasn't money coming out of our pocket. We're going to make money on these new people we were hiring. So that's a long way of saying we weren't afraid to grow, even though it was risky. I was on vacations a lot of time with the kids, you know, when they were three and four years old and staring up at the ceiling in the middle of the night going, well, I, you know, I could file bankruptcy. I could sell the car. I could homestead the house. You know, we all go through that, but I never let it paralyze me. So from the business side, I think what separates us from the firms that aren't as successful financially, they might be successful personally, is that fear, facing that fear and, and growing. And I know you can probably relate to that. I mean, look at how you guys have grown through the roof over the recent years. And there's no way you haven't had some sleepless nights, pal. No kidding. And, and the thing that I'm interested in, because I know you mentioned that even 20 years ago, you guys were running it like a business. And I would love to know, like, was there something in your experience or was there something you were naturally predisposed to, to know that that was the way to do it? Because you're kind of a unique case, right? Because you see a lot of you know lawyers who happen to own a business, but not as many business owners who happen to practice law, but you do both exceptionally well, which is, I mean, is, is a rarity. Yeah. I, I you know, kind of just dumb luck in what that means. I mean, I've always been kind of entrepreneurial. So I've had an entrepreneurial spirit and I look at personal injury really as entrepreneurial law. If you don't win, you don't make any money. So realizing that, that combined with my partner, 
we realized, you know, back in those days, there was no internet. So, you know, we had yellow page ads and that was kind of cheesy, but you know, okay, we've got to do that for business. Go out and speak. What I've learned or what I, what I believe anyway, is with regard to the business piece and the marketing piece, what I have learned is there's no silver bullet, you know, not one thing is going to, well, if you do this, then you're going to get here. I make up a hypothetical that everything works about 10% and, and that's not based on science, but I'd say you got to be doing 10 things to get your hundred percent pie, whether it's public speaking, internet marketing, you know, your videos, uh, getting verdicts, all that kind of stuff. You just have to do it all. And, you know, my partner and I, he was more into the marketing piece on, it was his idea for us to get a website. I mean, like 20 years ago. And he came to me one day and said, hey, you know, I want to get a website. And I'm like, our clients don't even have computers. No one had computers 20 years ago. What do you mean we need a website? He drove, drove the technology piece. I was kind of Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble. But I did want to be the part that I, I love public speaking. I knew you needed to do that. I knew you had to try cases to get verdicts, et cetera, et cetera. And speaking of the website, so the website itself is beautiful, but the domain, I know you talked about ego earlier, or maybe this was just brilliant back in the day when you, when you could get this. But if you could speak to just the domain, how that decision came to be, because I imagine it's pretty valuable today. Oh, and I was completely against it, you know, so I'm not even going to take credit for it, but I, I, I would like to. Um, so my partner came to me again about 20 years ago and he said he wanted to get a website and that was kind of the new thing and companies were getting them and I didn't think it was a really great idea, but he wanted to do it. And so thank God I acquiesced and I said, let's go for it. But yeah, so then he comes to me and he goes, okay, here's what we're going to call it. Bestattorney.com. And I'm like, no, that's so cheesy. It should just be biznarchase.com. Why do we have to be best attorney? I'm embarrassed. And I was embarrassed by that. I got to be honest with you for a few years, you know, my email address, bchase at bestattorney.com. Now I've learned a couple of things from that. Don't worry about what other people think. I was a lot more insecure about that stuff in those days and his brilliance on that. We probably couldn't even buy that today. Well, and you also got biznarchase.com, but you stuck with best attorney. And I love that in, in the sense that when you got that domain, I imagine at that point, did you feel that you could really live up to that, you know, to being best attorney? But in a way, it's like that being on every email signature, every time the domain popped up, do you think that created something to live up to? I did think about that. I, you know, I, I did think about that, but that piece I was always very confident in. The insecurity pieces, the marketing piece, things are cheesy and worrying about that. As far as, you know, that it wasn't something to live up to, I know my strength is I know what takes somebody an hour to figure out. It's going to take me three hours to figure it out. But after I figure it out, I can spin it a thousand times better than you any day of the week. And so I just outwork people. So I'm never really worried about, you know, being the best, quote unquote, whatever that means. You know, it's a tie amongst a lot of people that are the best. But I wasn't worried about that because my work ethic is is off the charts because I just don't want to look bad. <laughs> and I know, I know there's a lot of wins, clearly. And if you're open to it, I mean, just looking back, you know, is there any case in particular that stands out that, you know, you really wanted to win, you poured your heart and soul into and looking back, you like it just didn't go your way. And like, what, what did you learn from that? Yeah, you always learn, you know, from your losses. I mean, I don't I don't beat myself up too bad on my losses, but I don't pat myself on my back on the wins either. I think any case could be won and any case can be lost. There there is a case that I tried, you know, a number of years ago, and it was a hung jury, so it wasn't a loss, but it was it was kind of like a loss. Poured my heart and soul into that case, took years litigating it. We had over a million dollars in costs in it. So I'm glad I didn't lose it. But when I look back and the decision to ultimately resolve that case as opposed to trying it again, 
you know, the client was worried about trying it again. Frankly, I was. This was a long time ago. You know, I had, I think, $1.3 million in it. I didn't have $1.3 million to throw around when I was trying this case. A lot of decisions went into resolving that case. To this day, I'm kind of like, it was the right thing for the client. She got money out of it. If we lost, she wouldn't have got money. So that's okay. Personally, though, for me, as the trial lawyer and the businessman, I would have liked to take another swing at the fence on that. Yeah. And even look, looking back, I'm just curious, just on the business side, were there any pivotal decisions? I mean, I know we talked about domain name, but I imagine there's, there's quite a few others that you feel were really the catalysts behind the growth of the firm. Oh, one of my best. This is, I think, kind of an interesting story with regard to my auto defect stuff. One is the defense has to know and the insurance company has to know you're going to try cases. You know, they, they know who the settlement firms are and who the trial law firms are. But years and years ago, I had this case against an auto manufacturer out of state and it wasn't, a, it was a wrongful death case, but it wasn't a great case. And ultimately, long story short, we were willing to settle that case for $200,000 for a whole lot of reasons. The auto manufacturer, seeing that we were caving, and I didn't have the reputation then that I have now, they say, we'll offer you 180 just to jack me around. And this was the best decision we could have made. I said, nope, we're going to try the case then. Okay, well, whatever. And I said, it was tongue in cheek. It was a professional conversation. But I said, here's how this is going to play out. I'm going to go all the way out of state, check in my hotel, show up in federal court, and you're going to offer me that 200 grand. And I'm going to politely say, F you. And then you're going to offer me 250. And I'm going to say, F you. Then you're going to offer me three or 400. You're going to offer me more. And at some point, you'll stop. And I'm going to say, no. And look, this is a case I very likely lose. I'm going to have five, $600,000 in it. I'm going to lose it. It's going to cost you the same five or 600 grand. Plus, you got to pay your lawyers. And even if you win, you did this over 20,000 bucks. So six months later, I answer ready in trial. Judge says, where are you at? And I go, you know, uh, our demand's 1.2 million, Your Honor, the auto manufacturer. Well, wait a minute. You were at $200,000 at the mediation. And I go, no, I'm at 1.2. Well, well, they go go out in the hallway and talk, Judge says. Well, we got 250, three, 350. It goes up a little bit. I go, no, we're trying this case. Almost won it. The jury was out for three and a half days. Um, got some great questions to where they said, can we find this car defective or does it have to be the entire fleet? So that was a bad question for me, but it told me that I proved my, my one single case. Anyway, long story short, after that, I was off to the races in the auto defect world. They thought, this guy's crazy. He's going to try tough cases. He will try tough cases. And by the way, did a pretty good job on a crappy case. So that was a big turning point for us. I love it even looking back on that moment, like what compelled you to respond in that way, right? Because I mean, obviously, you know, the outcomes of things, you can't predict the future and so on, but it, most definitely that's probably a pivotal moment, not just in confidence, but just what drove you to, to handle it that way? Man, I, you know, I don't know. I, I know my ego part of me was feeling jacked around over this. I mean, even though I said, I'm probably going to lose, I knew we had a shot at winning it. And I thought, you know, you can only cave so far. And so now we're going to have to use this moment that, okay, well, we're caving and there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you pay a lot of money in cave. I don't look at you as weak. You recognize your case. You shouldn't punish me for, for quote unquote caving because I recognize the problems with my case. But when they weren't willing to do business between the guardrails, as I like to say, I thought then we got to make a point here and take a stand. And uh, one of the best decisions I've made, and whenever I'm in mediations to this day, and I've used it this year, where somebody will come up with a story on you're not going to try this case or it's going to cost a lot of money or whatever the reason is, I tell them this story. And, you know, it seems to work. Amongst trial attorneys, there's little disagreement about the importance of putting your client's interests first. That said, trial attorneys are often very competitive. 
And even though sometimes you might want to fight till the bitter end for your clients, there are trials which Brian believes strategically should not be pursued. I asked him to elaborate on how he determines whether to take a case to trial. First and foremost, it's always client driven, right? And you got to do what's best for the client. A large chunk of cases I resolve, I would rather have them not resolve. I would rather go to trial. I would rather take a shot at that eight or nine figure verdict versus settling in the seven figures. But as a client once told my partner, Bisnar, who is now retired, so this was even before I was practicing, they, they were going to settle it. And it was a smaller case, but they were offering like 200 grand. Bisnar wanted a half a million or whatever. And he says, look, we can go to trial. I can get this for you, et cetera, et cetera. And the client said, well, you know, Mr. Bisnar, you've probably got 100 cases back at your office. And so you can win some and lose some and you're going to be fine. But this is my one and only case. And I can't afford to lose it. And so that's always, it just got goosebumps telling that story. So that sticks with me. The first thing that drives a settlement is what's what's best for the client. If they're going to net X dollars, I ask them, if I've got a client that's that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, the fact that they're going to net 500 grand, who cares? They can care less. Other clients that are unemployed or make $50,000 a year or 30 grand a year, if they can net a half a million, that's life-changing money for them. So the first thing that drives any settlement for me is, can the client afford the risk and what will the money they net mean to their life, you know, with regard to buying a house, paying bills, whatever. I've got a case coming up for trial. I won't name who it is because the defendant might get a hold of this tape, but the client could have netted some money out of that. And, what, and along the lines of the story I just said, I can't expose a client to that, but I want to try this case badly because I want to make my mark in mass torts and it's a mass tort case. So I told the client, you're going to net X. Let's try the case if you're willing to try it. If I lose, I'm going to write you a check for what you could have netted out of that settlement. So you're not out anything other than you're going to have to be in trial for a while. And if you're okay with that, we're good. He says, if you're going to pay me, whether I win or lose, I'm in. And so I'm in a position now I can put my money where my mouth is because I want to try this case bad. I love that. And that in itself could be great marketing. I imagine you wouldn't do that for every case. But at this point, I, I could tell it's just it's it, and I mean, this in a, in a good way. Like, it's just fun for you. Like you, you genuinely enjoy the challenge. Oh, you know, you, you walk into court, you know, you get up in the morning, you're driving to court, you got your music on, you're ready to go kick butt, but you're also scared. I mean, you've just got this mix of emotions. And then when the trial starts, obviously, you're just in there to crush it. And to go through all of that is so much fun. Because you're, you're facing your fears, uh, you're going up against a big challenge. And the other thing I really love about trial is you're in the moment. It's got to be like if you're climbing a, a mountain and you don't have a, a rope or whatever, you better be in the moment or you can die. You know, when I'm in court, I'm not thinking about marketing. I'm not thinking about driving home. You are just so focused that at the end of the day, it's just kind of neat to be that in the moment. So, yeah, I just I love it. I can't believe I get paid to do it. You hinted at this earlier, so I want to ask you about it, but just how did your mindset towards marketing shift over the years, right? Because it seemed like initially, you mentioned you thought it was very cheesy and, you know, you see a lot of like legal marketing. I mean, there's a lot of truth to that, to be honest, but how did that mindset evolve? Because now it seems like you do quite a bit of marketing. Oh yeah. No, I mean, it, this is a great example of, I was worried about what people thought of me 20 years ago in that regard. Um, or even 15 years ago, you kind of, you know, it, which you should never do, you know, and, and that's a that's a whole segment in and of itself. But what I have learned and what has got me the way I got to the point of I don't care what they think, because when we had that website 18, 20 years ago, a lot of people teased me about it. OK, all those firms now and I'm talking guys that are way above me, they have websites. I would go to things like AAJ or, or some of the trial lawyer 
conferences around the country. I would have a booth, you know, and my big, my big picture of me frowning and, you know, don't miss out on millions in referral fees. And I'd be one of the only one or two people that had a booth there. And I'd be passing out stuff and meeting and greeting people and showing videos and, oh, that's cheesy. And I can go through the list of all of that stuff that everybody does now. Anybody that's successful is doing all of that. So it made me realize, you know, we were just kind of ahead of our time. Bisnar was first. And me now, I don't worry about it. If I think it makes sense, I'm going to do it. I'll get teased about it. And the people teasing me three years later are going to be copying me. And, you know, really marketing it at its core, I feel that once you have a message, it's really just the amplification of that message. Like back to your point that if you genuinely believe you are the best choice for your clients, then in a way you almost have like a duty to invest in getting out in front of those people and, and making sure that they know that you exist. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I'm kind of lucky because I have this niche of doing the auto defect stuff. And a lot of people don't really want to do it. Some people can't do it because it's very expensive. You know, trial's about a million bucks. Or a lot of people just, they got a better place to spend that money and they'll get a nice fat referral fee from me. So I really like the legal conferences just so people can read my books, learn issue spot cases, try to teach them. And I really try to encourage people to do it if they want to do it. Um, you know, I had a lot of people discouraging me 20 years ago from going into that line of work. It's like, well, you can refer it to so-and-so and get a monster referral fee. Why would you do it? Who are you? And I'm like, but I want to be that guy or I want to be that gal. So one of my motivations at these things is really just to motivate and encourage people to do it. But if you don't want to do that and you want to refer them out, I'm happy to take them. And you mentioned niche, uh, which is interesting because, I mean, a number of the attorneys we've had on the podcast, like Joe Freed, for example, who really dialed in on trucking, like, did you know that that was the right decision early on or did you just kind of fall into it? No, I didn't fall into it. So more the more the right decision, but I, I know it was expensive. You know, as I said, I, I love the products liability aspect when I had a class on that in law school and I knew about the Ford Pintos and frankly, the Vegas were Chevy Vegas were blowing up just as much and, and even more. So I knew that was interesting. And then as a baby lawyer, you know, when I'm doing these big monster cases that were worth about $7,000, you know, these little fender benders, I'm looking at guys ahead of me that have a practice that I would like to have. And there's nothing wrong with doing those smaller cases. It's whatever makes you happy. No, no judgment there at all. But I looked at the guys that, we're doing what I wanted to do financially. There's a whole lot more to life than just making a buck. And, and we all know that. But I looked at the guys and it kind of seemed like people start out doing PI, generic PI, like I was doing. Then they move into auto products or products liability, and then they move into mass torts. So as I'm just looking at people, so I don't have to reinvent the wheel. One of the motivators was, okay, that's something I probably should do because I see that as a stepping stone, but it was also more than that. Cause it, it's been a passion of mine. And frankly, if I thought I can do that for the rest of my career. I wouldn't even broaden the other practice areas in my law firm because I just love the auto defect stuff. But it's a business, and so I've got to diversify. And speaking about those types of cases and even products cases and so on, do you find yourself turning away certain cases that may even be lucrative but just don't align with the core focus of the firm? If I think they're going to be lucrative, no. I'm going to take those, and I'll figure it out. But sometimes there are cases that, like the auto stuff, I can do in my sleep. And so those are easy. Sometimes I'll get a complex product in that I don't really understand. And then it becomes, okay, well, I know I can figure it out. I know I can talk to the experts and I know I could analyze it. And yeah, then, then it comes to the point, well, how many people am I going to tie up to work on this one case? And then that might be a bad business decision. We might make money at the end of the day, but maybe not as much because I could have people working on other stuff. And then the only thing that's the exception to that rule is I have what I call my cause cases where I'm lucky to where I don't have to have every case make money. And I've been very blessed to have the level of success that I have. And so every now and then I'll see a case and go, 
And I don't know if I'm going to make any money on it, but this is bullshit. And I'm going to have to try to write that wrong. And I could tell you if you, I had a case I rejected just right along these lines. It was not a defect case, but I rejected it. So that that's just not going to be an economically viable case. And I'm talking to the, uh, the family member and we're kind of going through it. And uh, I said, well, you know, let me call you back in a couple of days. And then I got an email from, I guess, the referring attorney that was pictures of this guy's 14 year old daughter who had passed away on a morgue table. And when I, and I had kids around that age at the time. And when I'm seeing this, you know, young little girl in an autopsy room, I thought that didn't have to happen. I don't know if I'm going to make a lot of money on this case, but bullshit, that did not have to happen. I'm going to take the case anyway. Went full steam ahead in it. It was just the right thing to do. And turned out to be, you know, an economically viable case at the end of the day as well. But I have a few of those cases every year that it's just, it's the right thing to do. And I've been blessed, so I'm going to do it. Brian has reached the point in his career where he's able to take on cases that he believes are worth fighting, even if the outcome might not be profitable for the firm. One of the key drivers of his firm's growth is Brian's approach towards leading and developing a world-class team, particularly when it comes to his principles in regards to hiring and firing. But according to Brian, this wasn't always his forte. I'm a nice guy. People that have worked with me are nice people, but you know when they're not cutting it. You know, you usually know within months, but you know, six months in, a year in, well, they're not cutting it. I used to keep those folks around for three, four, five years. I'll, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. You're not doing them any favors and you're not doing yourself any favors. So I have really learned, I don't think I'm good at hiring, but so my rule of thumb is now just hire fast and fire faster. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way because it can kind of sound brutal and you're not doing anybody any favors by trying to make them better at a job that they just aren't good at. And they may be good at something else and really good. So I read this book, Jack Welsh, former uh, CEO of GE, called Winning. And he talked about A players, B players, and C players. You know, your A players, you keep those around. Your Bs, you try to make an A. And your Cs are below, you get rid of them. And uh, so, you know, Bisner and I, we call people at our office, you know, superstars. You know, are you a superstar? If you are, you can stay. If you're not, you're going to go. And my favorite story to make it sound like I'm not, you know, this mean human being is I had a, a guy who just was terrible, but it doesn't mean he's going to be not be excellent at something else, something I can't do. And so I had the kid come in you know, I had to let him go. He was teared up, you know, newly married guy. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And I felt terrible, but it just wasn't working and I'm not doing anybody any favors. And I bumped into this kid several years later in the airport had his suit on, looking all professional, and he walks up and he goes, hey, Brian, how are you? And I go, hey, great to see you. And he stops me and he goes, I wanna thank you for firing me. He goes, it's the best thing anybody could have done. I'm getting goosebumps again now I tell this story. It's the best thing anybody could have done for me. I forget now and I wish I could remember what he had gone on to do, but he's done something on his own. He's got his own business. He's an entrepreneur and was on his way to being very successful. So he's a superstar. He just wasn't a superstar paralegal. And whatever he's doing, I probably would be a deep player in that company. It's very important, I think, not to try to fix people. You're not helping your business. You're not helping them. And you're not serving your clients properly. And it seems like that, you know, for anyone that's not a superstar, it's extremely uncomfortable at the firm. But those who are, you invest a lot in them. I mean, I, I, I recall it. I don't, I don't know if this took a pause or hiatus on account of COVID, but just the retreats that you would do, the holiday parties, all those different things. Like, did you do any of that even, you know, over the past year? Still doing it. You know, you, you have to, you know, I mean, it's all about culture. And uh, so, you know, we have an annual staff meeting every year. This year it was on Zoom. What we do is we're, you know, in order to, to develop your culture, have everybody bought in and everybody realizing they're superstars, 
and being incredibly transparent. You know, so at the beginning of the year, we we talk about our culture. We talk about, you know, managing the client experience, managing referral attorneys experience. We go through last year's goals. If you hit your goal, you get your free trip to Hawaii, you and your significant other. We did that this year. No one's traveling, but they're going to cash them in. You know, we set goals. And so we go through all of those things every year. And we've been doing it this year. So our our Christmas party this year, we had food and a bottle of wine delivered to everybody's homes. And then at, you know, four or five o'clock, we got on Zoom and we all had our dinner heated up that was delivered to us from a caterer. And so we did our Christmas party that way, you know, and and so we've tried to maintain some sense of normalcy other than we're, you know, we're talking to each other on screens. Hey, look, there's going to be people that listen to this and they'll, they'll be muttering under their breath, like trip to Hawaii must be nice. You know, Brian's talking about all these seven and eight figure verdicts. And, and, and again, I realize at this point, you probably don't care anyway, but I do want to highlight the fact that it was not always this way. From what I recall reading at one point that when you guys started the firm, there were times you were maxing out credit cards, like anything to not miss a payroll. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say the firm has been around, it, it, you know, it predated me since 1978. Um, you know, I came on board in college in the late 80s and partnered up in the 90s. We've never missed a payroll, but I can tell you there were times where if a settlement check didn't come in before the 1st or the 15th, someone's not getting paid, you know? So we had a lot of those, those struggles and you're right. When you're new in business, no one wants to give you a credit line. And so what Bisner and I had, I had, you know, you know, whether it was 10 credit cards or eight or 12, I don't remember, but I had a bunch of credit cards with, you know, $10,000 limit, $5,000 limit. I think my Whopper might've had 12 grand on it. And we had these credit cards and that was our credit line, man. We'd max those things out. So yeah, the early years we had those financial struggles, didn't deter us. You know, we stayed motivated. And, you know, if you look back and you could probably say the same thing, I think we all perform so well when our back's against the wall. You know, I mean, you are just so in the moment on really getting that. Not that you want to have your back against the wall all the time, but, you know, it's pretty interesting because, you know, you put your nose to the grindstone and you make sure you come out the other side all right. Hey, look, you've been in the game a long time. I think at this point, over 30 years. And I believe I asked you this a few years ago at one of our conferences. We were talking about like the future and you mentioned something along the lines that you still have 10, 15 year goals that like you're just as excited now as you were even 20 years ago. Oh, and maybe even more excited. It's almost even, I, I'm every bit as excited. And then the older I get, I've got less time to do it. So now I'm even more excited because now I got to pack it in. You know, when you're in your 20s and 30s and 40s, Eh, you know, the future will take care of itself and you've got your short term and mid range term and long term goals. You know, now that I'm getting older, it's every bit as fun and in some ways even more exciting because now I got to pack it in because I'm, I have zero desire to retire. I've still got goals I haven't attained. And as soon as I attain those, then I'll have new goals. You know, whenever I hit a goal, I go, well, damn it, I set that bar too low. You know, I remember I did that when I was a kid. Well, if I can make X a year, you can't even spend that amount of money. And then when you hit that goal, you realize, wow. That's nothing. And then you triple or quadruple the goal. And I've always been able to hit those goals. And so if you kind of get into the whole spiritual stuff about manifesting and, and attracting things and vision boards and all that kind of stuff, I have really seen in my life when I hit those goals, they end up happening. So, I've, you know, the mistake I've made is setting goals too low. So I got some whoppers now, Michael, and uh, I'm just going to keep on cranking until the good Lord says I'm done. And this is, by the way, this is a judgment-free podcast because I know we talk about a lot of financial targets, which to me, it sounds like at this point that these are, this is just a scoreboard, if you will. But it's interesting to, you know, to see the business case for that. So meaning that in order to even hit these financial targets, 
Providing amazing customer service and client experience is a necessity. Having great outcomes and results for clients is a necessity. So you're doing a very good thing. But I'm curious, like, how do you define success? There are so many different successes. I mean, first and foremost, uh, you know, just big picture, being happy. If you're not happy, you know, both at work, you know, your, your professional and non-professional life, then you're not successful. Um, and so I would just define it as happiness first and foremost. And then there are different things that make people happy. And whatever those are, then you're a successful person. I'm very lucky, and I can say this with a, with a straight, you know, I was born, you know, a relatively poor kid. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was three. My mom was raising me, you know, living in apartments. We didn't have a lot of money. I didn't know I didn't have a lot of money. I had the happiest childhood on the planet. But I look back on it and I remember, you know, Schwinn Stingrays were the bike you had to have back in the 70s. My first Schwinn, I got at a garage sale. We couldn't buy a brand new one. But I didn't know I was being left out on not getting a new Schwinn. It's like, I got my Schwinn. So I can look at, at the beginnings I've come from. I could have looked when I've hit financial marks. I'm no happier today than I was then. So when I, when I, and I hope people don't ever, when I talk about success or, or these benchmarks, it's, it's fun to, to have money and, and, and get nice stuff, but I'm not one ounce happier than I was this little poor kid living in Southgate in one of the suburbs of LA, living in our one bedroom apartment where my mom let me have the bedroom and she slept in the living room on a couch that made out into a bed. Man. And I will say, but you certainly seem like you're someone who's living life to the fullest. I, I love it. I, I'll see even on social media, uh, you'll post the photos something about with the Maserati pulling up to the gym or you'll, you'll be you know, out on a trip with your wife. And I wanted to ask you, because you know, a lot of times you would end this with the word BAM. Where, where, did, where did BAM come from? You know, it's funny because I, I, I get asked that a lot. And it's what was the, you know, the TV guy, uh, the cook, the chef, is it Emerald? Emerald. Yep. Emerald. So remember he'd get there with his flavors like bam and he would do it. So it just came from that. I didn't invent it, but I used to just love it when the guy goes bam. So every now and then if someone will bam me on social media, I'll do a gif of, of Emerald doing the bam. <laughs> and look, I got to commend you just, just so you know, like even a lot of the questions that I'm asking, I hope you know that like, I think what you've described and kind of your experience, like you're living life to the fullest and this should be held to high esteem. I mean, to come from the background that you, you've come from and to really just be enjoying things. Like, again, the listeners of this podcast a little different. I don't think anyone would demonize you, but it's so aspirational to see like what happens when you apply work ethic and, you know, just really focus on developing the business side, do right by your clients, all those different things. I'm curious though, like just on a day-to-day -day basis, what are some of the habits that keep you on track? What, what keeps you engaged? Always wanting to grow. So I'm always reading books, whether it's like that Jack Welch book, a Deepak Chopra book, you know, a Zig Ziglar book, whatever it may be. I'm, I, I try to have something I'm reading regularly that inspires me, whether it's a biography on a lawyer or, you know, whatever the quote unquote spiritual type book. So I do that regularly. There are certain, you know, things I want to do, you know, money wise. I've got, you know, like a vision board type thing, but it's on my laptop. I get up in the morning for, you know, five minutes and look at some things financially that I want and, and I want to attract. I'll look at travel things that where my wife and I want to go and certain do certain things or do things with our kids. So I do get up in the morning and, and try to set aside some time, whether it's 20 minutes or an hour and, and think about, am I happy and is everything going in the right direction? So I've got the financial piece, I've got the family piece, my parents, and just focus on that for a little bit. And I just find that that's just a great way to start the day. And then when you're, when you're going to work, are you doing things that are going to help you get those various things that you're, you're, you're focusing your energies on? And you mentioned earlier that one of the biggest mistakes you made looking back was, was setting goals too low. If you could elaborate on that. Yeah, it's, 
It's funny because I didn't really, when I was setting goals as a little kid, you know, I wasn't aware of all these things like vision boards and attracting things into your life. And some people may believe in that and some people may not. But I know like, well, for example, when I was, when I got out of law school, I thought, you know, I want to make a million bucks a year. As soon as I make a million bucks, I'm done. You know, I mean, you can't spend a million dollars. And then, you know, lo and behold, when that happened, because your lifestyle, you know, whether you're making 50 grand a year, 100, 150, 200, you're just, you're getting a little more expensive car, a little more expensive home, you can spend it. Now, there may be some dollar amount you can't spend. I haven't hit that yet. But in setting my goals, you know, so I, I did set that goal. And then when I hit it, I thought, wow, I set that too low. I used to talk about to my friends in law school or college and being on the, the merry-go-round and going for the, the brass ring. That was my brass ring. And I realized I set that too low. And then so I, then I set a different, you know, with regard to financial goals, a different financial goal. I thought, well, I mean, I'll be golden if I do that. And then I hit it. And, and again, not complaining because we're all very blessed to, to have even a paycheck. But I, I, I have learned and I've learned the older I get, if you set a goal and you really believe in it, you know, with the mind, you know, you know can believe and achieve or conceive, or you can get, achieve or whatever that phrase is, it works. So I've got some goals now that I would have been afraid to set 30 years ago because I think I can't even talk to people about this. That's crazy. So to the extent anybody ever wants to talk about goal setting, I mean, just set it and you're going to hit it. You will hit it. The universe just won't let you fail if you're just a good person, you work hard and it might take you your whole life. You know, you might not get it in 12 months, but, you know, life is a is a journey, not a destination. And Brian, like, there's got to be people listening. And I was the same way, like years and years ago, when you say things like, hey, just work hard. And they're gonna be like, yeah, but like, what is it really? Like, what do I do? And it's so interesting in, in, in my conversations where so many successful entrepreneurs are talking about vision boards and setting targets and visualization and all those different things that it can seem, I guess, you know, like something that's a little bit silly to someone who's not doing those things. But there's a certain level of consistency that you see in those that are earning seven, eight figures a year that all happen to be doing it. Yeah, I don't know anybody that is successful, financially successful. Again, I want to, they, they might be emotionally miserable. I don't know. But I don't know anybody that's financially successful that doesn't do all that stuff. I'm living proof. I mean, I, I see other people, you're living proof. That kind of stuff just works. And and so I, you know, I spend a lot of time reading books on that too, because it's, it's inspiring. And, um, and then you've got this, I'll have the few naysayers come to me from time to time and like, well, hey, Brian, you know, I've, you know, I've been reading this and I'm, trying to manifest that. And I watched the secret or whatever they said they did and they go, and it doesn't work. Well, I didn't used to have an answer for that, but I do now. I was reading a book by Wayne Dyer. I don't know if you've read any of Wayne Dyer's books and he passed away a few years ago, but he talks about all that stuff. And he was kind of like one of the earlier ones, right? Especially back in the, like in the seventies and eighties, I think. Anyway, someone came to him saying, you know, you're full of crap. This doesn't work. And Wayne Dyer looked at him and he said, well, you have to ask yourself, what were you willing not to do? And I thought, man, because when I have people being critical of things, now I'll say, well, you know, you know, what were you willing not to do? And, and usually if you have a heart to heart with somebody, it comes out. You know, you could I ask myself that all the time. What am I if I'm too tired to go do something or if I don't want to get on a plane and go here, if I don't want to go do that? I'm like, oh, is that going to be something that I was willing not to do that may affect what I want to get? And I'm going to get my ass up and go do it. And right. As we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast. What does being a game changer mean to you? For me, at this point in my life, with regard to my professional life and my career, I want to inspire people. 
I want to, I want to encourage them to have whatever level of success they, they can have. And if I can motivate and inspire, that's game changing to me in their personal life. If I could help them in litigation with trial tips or anything I have to share with them, that would be game changing for that. And just continue to run my business like a business and get verdicts and, and do what I love doing. So I don't know if I answered your question, but that'd be my game changer definition, you know, giving back and helping people and still kicking ass on my end. I want to give a huge thank you to Brian Chase for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when Brian said that the most successful firm owners don't have retirement in sight. By consistently elevating and playing a bigger game, leaders are able to take their firms and themselves to new heights. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Brian Chase, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time and we'll be talking to best-selling author, thought leader, and media strategist, Ryan Holiday. He said, I knew that if I did survive, I would turn this into an event that in retrospect, I would never give up. To me, that's the core of stoicism. It's not, oh, everything's awesome. Everything's great. I'm going to get through everything. It's like, no, shit is real. Shit is raw. Shit is hard. But I'm going to be profoundly better for what has happened. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Podcast.